The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net. You know, according to the rules of a pluralistic society, it's much safer to talk about your religious tradition than it is to actually talk about your devotion to Christ. So, for example, if I tell you that I'm busy this weekend because I'm celebrating Easter or Hanukkah or or Ramadan, well, that's that's not terribly threatening. Maybe it's even deemed nice that, you know, there are such diverse and time-worn heritages among us. But if I speak of loving or worshiping or following Jesus, then warning bells go off in people's minds because those sorts of concepts smell of fanaticism and they likely won't receive a warm welcome. Do you see the distinction I'm making? If I, if I tell you that I'm a, a Baptist or a Catholic or an Episcopalian, usually there's no danger there. Every family has some weird rituals, right? Like maybe my family plays Twister at Christmas or watches the same hokey movies over and over again, and maybe your family goes to an old building and sings strange songs. That's fine, but if I talk about how I really want to better grasp the words of Jesus or I want to please him with my lifestyle choices, then I'm more likely to attract hostility from people who are on the outside looking in. And this dynamic didn't escape the first recipients of the letter to the Hebrews. Their devotion to Jesus had attracted more than a little hostility from the surrounding culture. Now, they weren't in danger of of just walking away and flat out renouncing their faith openly. The more subtle temptation was, as we talked about two weeks ago, to just sort of drift out of what felt like harm's way. To just go back to a less conspicuous tradition that, that brought about a lot less scrutiny, a lot less pain for everyone. So while Christians at that time were often viewed as some radical cult, there were famous Jews in the Roman Empire, and there were laws on the books encouraging tolerance for Jews. So if Jesus' people could just kind of blend in and be known as people within the tradition of Moses, well then, pragmatically, that would keep them much safer. That would be much more respected. There's only one problem. Such hypocrisy would completely disregard the preeminence of Jesus. Jesus, the one who said, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So there's no getting around the demand of Jesus that he be preeminent in your life. And that's why we're going to be exhorted again today to keep him preeminent above any other faithful religious figures or good religious traditions. And verse 1 begins, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. The word therefore reminds us of what came before. And last week we saw at least five ways in which Jesus uniquely became humanity's champion. Only he is the founder of our salvation. And we're addressed here with such a high title. Did you notice that? We're being called holy brothers and sisters, holy siblings. If we are in Christ by faith, then we are holy. We are sacred. We are separate. And we are family. Jesus, our high priest, has sanctified us and set us apart for God. 
And the author is very keen that we won't forget that change that Jesus has already brought into our lives. Because Jesus came and shared in our earthly humanity, we now share in a heavenly calling. We have a vocation, a role to play in God's kingdom. And that means we have everything to gain by persevering in the faith, and we have everything to lose by cheapening it and trading it down. And this is why we must consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Consider Jesus. Consider. We, we consider, we think about, we reflect upon, we contemplate the things that we feel matter most in our lives. Everyone does, without even planning to consider them. You just do. Like you get that ambiguous text from a coworker or from a romantic interest, and you're like, oh, I got to think about this. What are they really saying? What's the tone? How am I supposed to respond? Or sadly, sometimes we spend most of our time considering plot twists in our favorite TV shows and movies. But heavenly calling, that requires a bit more consideration than an entertainment calling. The apostle and high priest of our confession, he should grip our consideration even more than a work problem or a first date. Now, he's called the apostle of our confession. Apostle is a word that simply means sent one. Jesus spoke a lot about how he was sent by God the Father to do his will. And we know then that Jesus, in turn, had apostles. He had 12 capital A apostles to do his will with special authority. But we also know that he still sends us today, doesn't he? So, from a manner of thinking, each of us Christians could be considered little a apostles. Uh, We are sent ones. But Jesus is the apostle. He is the only one with the ability to truly fulfill the will of God on earth. And he is the high priest of our confession. He is the only one who can cleanse us and bring us into the very presence of God. He's the apostle of our confession. He's also the high priest of our confession. And there's a reason, actually, that we're reminded here of Jesus as high priest right before we speak about Moses. Uh, In the first half of the first century, the most popular Jewish writer in the Greek-speaking world was Philo. He was a sort of uh, philosopher and advocate for Jewish rights. So his writings served as um, a tour book of sorts for the Roman Empire so that they could grasp the Jewish religion so that it it wouldn't... um, be so scary to them and be more approachable. And Philo, in his writings, he, re- he repeatedly refers not to Jesus, but to Moses as high priest. The thought being that, well, Moses is the one who ordained the Levitical priests, and so Moses must really be the high priest par excellence. The writer of Hebrews, however, shows us that if that's true of Moses, how much more is that true of Christ? But what I'm getting at is that the very mention of high priest here, it would have brought Moses into the minds of the first hearers immediately. Now, to us as non-Jews living in the year of our Lord 2022, it may seem a little bit anticlimactic to think about how Jesus is better than Moses. That's kind of a given, right? Of, of course he is. But I assure you, for the original audience, that was, that was very relevant because in Judaism, Moses is huge. The five books of the Torah were written by Moses. And then the prophetic writings, the prophets are just interpreting Moses. And 
uh, exhorting people from the book of Moses and, and in the writings, those riff on mosaic themes, and they give the history of the people who were formed by the law of Moses. So quite simply, the influence of Moses is seen in every part of your Bible. And uh, if the book of Hebrews is all about how Jesus is better, right? That's our theme. Jesus is better. Well, then we got to speak about Moses. And speaking about Moses now is going to take us closer to the center of it all. That Jesus fulfills and eclipses all of the ancient promises and prophecies and patterns. Specifically, when, when we put Jesus and Moses side by side, we're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see, um, one, a comparable faithfulness. A comparable faithfulness between Jesus and Moses. So you see that in verse 2. Second, we'll see a higher glory. Jesus bears a higher glory, and that's unpacked in verses 3 and 4. And then we'll see a contrasting role. Jesus and Moses have different roles, and that's unpacked in verses 5 and 6. So that's the outline that we can see in this section. And first, in verse 2, we read of a comparable faithfulness, that Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So there's going to be a lowering of Moses in importance next to Jesus throughout this text. But the author wants to start by just being very clear. Moses was faithful. He did accomplish what God sent him to do. And the thought that Moses was faithful, uh, it's actually a quote. Moses being faithful in all God's house. It's from Numbers chapter 12, verse 7. And actually all of our verses this morning are kind of a meditation on Numbers 12, 7. If you looked at Numbers 12, you would see that the situation is God himself speaking about Moses' uniqueness because Miriam and Aaron had been griping about their brother Moses, and so God confronts them and says, Hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him with a dream, but not so my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And this isn't unique. God actually defends and he exalts his faithful servant Moses many times in the books of Exodus and Numbers. And so the author of Hebrews, he's not going to speak against faithful Moses, and neither should we. Moses' faithfulness was immense, and we'll read more about it in chapter 11. Moses suffered greatly in order to lead the grumbling, rebellious people. Uh, he endured 40 years of hardship with them in the wilderness, brought about by their sin. And before that, Moses faithfully stood in God's name against the most powerful man in the world at that time. Pharaoh had positioned himself as a god, and he demanded worship. He was a cruel slave master who had sent many to their death. But by faith, Moses rejected fear. While not perfect himself, Moses did, by and large, withstand temptation. He was known for his meekness. He patiently served to instruct and shepherd the people and to point them to the redemption that would come through a spotless sacrifice. Jesus also suffered immensely, watching his people go astray, turning from God toward the father of lies. Jesus spent whole days performing miracles for a faithless, grumbling, accusing people. He suffered physically 
and emotionally in ways we will never comprehend, absorbing for us the penalty we deserved. Jesus stood against a tyrant as well, the greatest of tyrants, Satan, the first one to claim the place of God. And Jesus withstood temptation perfectly, even when Satan himself was whispering scripture out of context to try to get Jesus to sin. Jesus patiently served to instruct and shepherd and actually redeem the people. So both of these righteous men are models to us. Not, they weren't timidly clinging to a religious system. They were boldly, boldly holding forth the, in, in faithfulness the truth, and they were faithful to the God who had commissioned them. So like verse 2, we need to celebrate the faithfulness of both Moses and Jesus. So, so far so good, similar in faithfulness. But despite the comparable faithfulness, there's no denying that Jesus bears a superior glory. We read, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So the author concedes that uh, Moses has glory. He does have glory. Uh, in Exodus 7.1, the Lord actually said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And often, Moses quite literally carried the glory of the Lord around with him. We read in Exodus 34 that when he came down from Mount Sinai and he had the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, uh, Moses didn't know that the skin of his face was shining and the people were afraid to come near him. And actually, whenever Moses would go into the tent and meet with the Lord, then he'd come out and the people would see his face shining and he would put a veil over his face so that they wouldn't be afraid of the glory that remained there. Now, not only in the Bible does Moses have glory, but Moses also had glory throughout the Greco-Roman world in the time uh, in, in which the letter to the Hebrews emerged. So in Acts chapter 15, it's mentioned that um, in the Gentile areas, in the non-Jewish areas, from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And writers like Philo and Josephus, in their writing for non-Jews, they painted a picture of Moses that just stunned the readers. And so the name of Moses was respected and even revered by friends of Jews, by God-fearers and Jewish proselytes throughout the Roman Empire. Moses had a glory. The writer of Hebrews, however, wants us to see that Jesus is more glorious. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses himself says this in his goodbye speech. He said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So Moses points away from his lesser glory to the greater glory of Christ. But even more to the point, in verses 3 and 4, it we're shown that Jesus is not merely the ultimate prophet. 
he is also divine. We're led on this trail of logic. That Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses because the builder of a house is worthy of more glory than the house itself. Oh, and by the way, the builder of all things is God. Moses, as great as he was, is just a part of this house that Jesus is building. And you can't outglory the builder. And the builder is the divine Jesus. Now, all this talk about glory, it might sound a little bit religious and uh, irrelevant. But here's the thing. When you sign on to a cause, it needs to have glory, right? Whether it's the French Revolution or the abolition movement, people have to perceive glory in order to sign on. Only glory will enable you to endure suffering, the suffering that's sure to come in the early days of any struggle. And if the cause you joined isn't able in the end to attain to the promised glory, something, you know, a, a cause like um, Crystal Pepsi or um, Ross Perot's Reform Party, well then, you quickly drift away from your commitment to the cause because it didn't deliver on glory. That's why Hebrews wants us to know where the glory is. Jesus is where the glory is at. But what if our Christianity doesn't pursue Jesus himself, but is actually just content with the lesser glory of a tradition? The lesser glory, you know, similar to how the Jewish Christians were tempted to fall back on Moses. What if you're tempted to just fall back on the benefits of Christianity, the, the this-worldly aspects of it? What if you're just content to have respect as a good person or the stability of a good family? or the enjoyment of a good community. That's not glory. These things, even if you attain them through your Christian efforts, in the end, they won't deliver the glory that we all seek. People cling to Christian practices for many reasons, but Christian lifestyles, Christian traditions, don't lead to glory. Only Christ himself does. Now, to further grasp why a mere prophet like Moses, even if he was the, the most powerful, the most profoundly used by God, a mere prophet could never be a substitute for Jesus. We need to see that Jesus had a different role altogether. Jesus and Moses have contrasting roles. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, so the picture being drawn is that the son and the heir to a house, he has a role far exceeding that of the house's servant, even if it's the chief servant of the house. So, you know, as this house, this house analogy is going to continue, we, we should probably talk about, is this a physical house or is it just kind of like a, you know, figurative house, like a household? And I think the answer is both. Okay, it's a figurative house in that, like in many places in the Bible, the people of God themselves are described as the temple of God. In the new covenant, we as Jesus' people are the dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. But then it's also a literal house in that that temple that we are eventually is synonymous with the whole new creation. So the physical reality where we will worship God forever, you could say that the house being talked about here is similar to the kingdom of God or the realm of God. It is present in the people of God, and one day it will envelop the whole cosmos. So it is this house that Moses served with his many labors. He's called a servant. 
The word there uh, is for an esteemed servant, okay? It's not like a slave servant. It's, it's more like a steward than anything. A servant like this actually held a position of nobility, but it was under the authority of the one who had appointed him. Now, when you think about it, what a servant does, a good servant, an intelligent servant, a servant moves things, a servant sets up systems so that the house can operate. And with Moses, we see that God used him to give the law. He used him to guide the people to to God's righteousness. God used Moses to set up the sacrificial system, to cover over the people's sin and restore their ability to commune with God. And he used Moses to lead the people out of bondage to slavery and, and to the abundance of the promised land. So the magnitude of these accomplishments is astounding when you think about it. But it was the work of a servant. It wasn't the work of a builder and a son. Jesus is greater. And First Chronicles 17 prophesies about Jesus in this way. It says, He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. We saw that quoted earlier in chapter 1. I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. I know there's a lot here, um, but we see that Jesus utilized the work done by Moses, and then he carried it through to its intended end. As the ultimate king, Jesus stood on a mountain and gave a sermon and taught the law in a form more complete, more final than that of Moses. As the high priest of our confession, Jesus doesn't merely cover over sins. He fully and finally atoned for them. As our leader in the deeper exodus, Jesus leads not merely our bodies out of slavery, but our souls. And he leads us not just to a fruitful strip of Palestine, but to a homeland that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Moses, we're told, was faithful to testify to the things that would be spoken later. And this, by the way, is how the Old Testament people of God were saved, still through Jesus, though they didn't know his name, but they only trusted in the one who Moses and others predicted and foreshadowed. So Moses testified with these shadowy words, and then the final words came in Jesus, leaving no need for any other words. Moses set up the tabernacle where God would dwell in the midst of his people amid cloud and fire. But in Jesus, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Same word. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Moses turned water into blood as a sign of God's wrath against evil. Jesus turned water into wine as a sign of the consummation of good things to come. Moses gave instructions for a year of jubilee, for the forgiveness of debts and setting free of captives. Jesus announced that that jubilee was fulfilled in him and that the liberty he was proclaiming was lasting. Moses gave miraculous bread in the wilderness to sustain the people in their wanderings. But Jesus gives himself as the bread of life, saying, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus, you see, took the framework. He took the settings, the scaffolding, the resources set out by his faithful servant Moses. And he built with them as a a master craftsman with the full authority of an heir and a king. So consider the glory 
of the only one who is the builder of God's house. We have every reason to marvel at his handiwork, especially given the extra twist thrown in by verse 6. We read, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our, con- our confidence and our boasting and our hope. We are his house. We are the house in which Moses served, the house that Jesus is building. And the book of Hebrews reminds us to take this household language seriously. We are a house together. Ours is not an individual faith. Church is not just a human institution. It's a divine building. Pieces are put together with historic roots and spiritual interconnectedness. And in the Old Covenant, you'd go to the tent that God told Moses to make, and you would hear, in the midst of the congregation, you would hear teaching from the words that God gave to his servant Moses. But today, if you want to be in the family of God, you need to be part of a church. Christian growth and discipleship is a group project. It's We are the pieces being formed together into this building. It's not a solo endeavor. You need to be part of a church. And when you share Christ with others, you need to bring them into the church. And this is part of the problem with online church. Okay, It might be necessary as a temporary arrangement in some unique situations, but it is not a new normal. It is not a substitute for the life-on-life flesh-on-flesh interconnectedness that we read about throughout the New Testament, including Hebrews. It's a, it's a gathered people that are being built up as a house, as a temple. And it's to the gathered people of God that he here says, we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. In other words, true Christians constitute the house of God. I say true Christians because... The church in God's eyes is made up of persevering believers with authentic faith. And unfortunately, that's not everyone who self-identifies as a Christian. That's not everyone who shows up at a church. How can we know if we're the real deal? How can we know if we have become part of the house of God? According to this passage, if you hold fast, you are the real deal. In Matthew 24, 13, Jesus himself says, but the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. You know, each day there's a sinister inertia at work that's trying to carry you away from Christ. And it doesn't take much, to be honest. What is it for you that disrupts your confidence in Christ? Is it circumstances? Is it emotions, relationships, other opportunities? We have to take a stand and say, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. You have to take that stand. If you don't hold a, a tight grip to Christ, you will drift away from him. And this is why in Revelation 3.12, also written to hurting Christians, it says, hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. There's that building imagery again. Never shall he go out of it. So what does this holding fast look like? We know from elsewhere in the New Testament that persevering in the faith looks like bearing good fruit, bearing fruit of the Spirit that comes about because there's true faith there. 
uh, in verse 6, the fruit of faith that's particularly focused on is outward in nature. It says we must hold fast to our confidence and we must hold fast to our boasting in our hope. Now, the word for confidence there, it could also be translated boldness, openness, courage. So these two things that we're told to hold on to, they actually overlap quite a bit. And the picture being drawn is that because we trust in Christ so much and we hold him so tightly, other people know about that. And in fact, we are proactively boasting about it. Boasting, of course, not, not something snide like, I have something you don't. No, it's, it's boasting like I'm just bulging with excitement and contentment because of the good that I've experienced. You can't help but have it come up in conversation with other people. And this is why we're trying to give more opportunities to boast in that hope together. Um, You know, either this afternoon or on most Tuesdays at cruise nights, we stand out in front, we hand out free water and um, freeze pops, and we hand out info about our church and about the gospel. And when possible, we engage people in further conversations, and we try to get Bibles into their hands. Now, most people will just take the water or they'll just ignore us altogether. Um, But this is a simple, very, very simple way to identify with Christ and just say, I have to boast in this hope. It's, It's too good to hide. I need you to know that there is hope in Christ and that this is a place where his house can be found. Now, Tuesday nights, of course, aren't our only opportunity, and we're gonna keep trying to be creative to find more and more opportunities for us to boast in our hope together but this is also something you do on your own every day as you engage with neighbors and co-workers and friends and family you can boast in your hope you can hold forth your confidence however it plays out as long as it actually does play out your desire to be outward with your faith is good evidence that you are part of this house If you have this confidence, it's just too good not to wear openly. We are his house if we hold fast. Now, courage comes from seeing. Courage comes from seeing. Um, If you think about the classic battlefield scenario, um, like Napoleonic times, or uh, or actually think about um, our national anthem, Uh, courage came from seeing the flag the flag's waving, right? Our flag was still there. When the flag is there, it's standing its ground. We feel like we can stand our ground. When the flag is moving forward, we feel that we can move forward. And Jesus is that banner in the often nightmarish battle of life. It is only by considering Jesus, by keeping our eyes on Jesus, that we can have the courage and that we can make it to the end. He himself is what we watch. He is who we consider. Hebrews tells us again and again to consider Jesus and to risk everything on him as the source of our glory. The world prompts us to consider and to invest in anything other than Jesus. So if there's one question for you to talk about with yourself or or with others this afternoon or this evening, think about this question. What do you spend your time considering? What is it? It takes your eyes off of Jesus. What is distracting you to death? Consider Jesus. 
Because if you trade down from him, whether overtly or slowly and unknowingly, you're not going to find lasting glory anywhere else. So why settle for a mere tradition, for a framework, for a bare house, for a servant? Jesus is better than anything that even the best of God's other servants can offer. Hold fast to him because nothing less will save. Our Lord God, we ask for your grace in this matter. Some of us lack the courage we know we need to have. Some of us um, struggle just to claim that hope every day, much less to uh, boast in it. We pray, Lord, that you would fix our eyes on you in such a way that it transforms the way we think and transforms the way we live. We ask this in Jesus' name. Now I'll invite Pastor Victor.